As our regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader, both of fiction and nonfiction, at the heart of what I find most enjoyable are stories that move me, whether the pages bring me joy, make me laugh, inspire me, or sadden me. The books that stay with me after I've read them are often the ones I'll gladly pick up once again. I can't uh, count how many times I've read To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sure many of you as well. That's one of the books you've read again and again. Uh, One of the books that I just read last week was by a familiar name to me and I suspect to you. And I realized early on uh, in the, you know, within the first few pages, this wasn't just a book about a woman's lifelong fascination with horses. It was also about relationships and life and how the past can shape the present. I'm talking about a book called Horse Crazy, and the author is Sarah Maslin Near. Sarah is a staff reporter for the New York Times, and one of her most memorable investigations earned her the distinction of being a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Unvarnished, if you recall. This was the result of a year-long investigation into New York City's nail salon industry, and it documented the exploitative labor practices and health issues manicurists face. Previously, she freelanced for 11 sections, yes, 11 sections of the paper, traveling to the Alaskan wilderness in search of people who preferred to live in isolation or to post-earthquake Haiti. And before that, as she details in the book, she was a Times nightlife columnist covering 252 parties in 18 months. A born and raised Manhattanite, she recently published Horse Crazy by Simon and & Schuster, and it would be just an understatement to say she likes horses, or even that she just loves horses, as you'll discover in this wonderful, entertaining, and at times heart-rendering book. Sarah, welcome to City Watch. Wow, what an intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, my first question for you, I might have answered it, but I'm sure there are details that I did not. Before I get to the book, for any listeners who don't know much about you, who is Sarah Maslin Near? Oh, gosh, that is a profound question to start our Sunday morning with. Who is she? Uh, well, until recently, she was a secret horse crazy. I kept my lifelong passion and obsession, really, with these animals a secret because, Jeff, I cover such hard corners of the world, really dire stuff, and I felt that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I revealed that when I'm not deeply engaged with journalism, I'm deeply engaged with ponies. And I was speaking to a friend uh, a couple years ago, and he really said something that stuck with me. He said, Sarah, passion resonates. It doesn't matter what it's about. Passion is something you'll get. And Jeff, uh, pardon me if I'm wrong here. I don't think you're a horse person, right? I'm not a horse person. person. But but the book sounds like it resonated with you, and I think he was right. And so in that moment, my friend really freed me from these strictures I'd put on myself, and I came out as a horse person and uh, pitched the book Horse Crazy. And when... Uh, So this started a few years ago, but how did your approach to the book evolve? Because it's not just about horses. Yeah, the book ends up being really a memoir that my story framed and threaded through the horses in my life. Each chapter is named after a different horse in my life. And it also became the story of horse crazies around the world, because wherever I've gone as a New York Times reporter, from the wildfires of California to uh, the terrorist zones in West Africa, when I'm done, I put away my notebook and I whip out another and go find the horses. Um, And so I found the people behind those horses. Um, But when I pitched the book, I said to my publisher, Simon Schuster, you know, this is the story of horses and and their, their people around the world. And they pushed back and they said, no, 
it's your story. And, and that, as a reporter, the word I, we, is just beaten out of us. We never use it in the New York Times. It's forbidden. And so that was really the most challenging part of this endeavor, is digging into my personal story. And I often say that horses are personal. You know, you look at a dog or a cat and you think, oh, how cute. But you look at a horse and you feel something. It's sort of like looking at a mountain range or, or the roiling sea. It, it has an emotional pull, and that's because horses are personal. So given my previous guest uh, this morning, Matthew Bronfman, uh, we talked about a new survey about a lack of knowledge about the Holocaust among Gen Zs and millennials. Can you share a little with our listeners about your father, uh, who he was, and also what he published? Sure. I'm sure for listeners right now, they're like, that's a left turn. But actually, (laughs) it's important. It is important. (laughs) Yeah, my book takes uh, quite a few turns. And and I talk about that. I say, you know, writing about, you know, ponies and Nazis and intermingled sentences feels uncomfortable. But those are the threads of my life, weirdly, that, that braided together make me who I am. My father was a Holocaust survivor uh, who, at the age of nine, he liked to say, um, it defeated 80 million Germans trying to murder him by having a false identity as a Catholic. And he sort of hid in plain sight. And throughout the book, I try to unpack why I'm so compelled by horses. And I realize a large part of that was passing, was entering as the daughter of an immigrant, the daughter of an outsider, uh, into this very insider, waspy world. Um, and I tried to, to study that. And I'll, I'll give you a story from the book, Jeff, that when I was about 15, I won, uh, excuse me, I got second place at a very, very prestigious competition called the Hampton Classic that happens in Long Island. And I was sure I hadn't won. I hadn't gotten anything because uh, I'm an outsider. Um, But my dad waited all day by the side of the ring. And at the end of the day, they called out the winners and the horses paraded into the winner's circle, followed by one tiny little old Jewish man at his bald (laughs) head. Uh, And I got second place. And my dad collected the ribbon for me and he put it on his chest and he turned to the judge and he said, I defeated Hitler. And that is that unpacking of horses, of any passion, what it means to you. It, it's so much deeper than just a, a, a compulsion or an interest. It was braided up with all of these uh, layers of identity for my family. And I only realized that in really turning my investigative lens on myself. And, and that was, as you recounted that, I kind of got a chill. That was one of my mm. uh, most memorable moments of the book throughout this book. Uh, you walk us through your connections with a number of horses over the years. You write, and I'm pulling a quote, horse crazy is structured around the lifelong dialogues I've had with these animals, each chapter named after a horse who told me its story or helped me write my own. So take us back to when you fell in love with horses, because this was more than a passing fancy. So I'm a born and raised Manhattanite, and it's super unusual that I'm a horse girl. Also, I like to say that my family only likes animals if they come with a Bernays sock. So it's uh, really not um, part of my lineage or my my, uh, everyday. Um, But I think it started, my parents uh, said I was really energetic and I wouldn't uh, sit still. So they thought, the genius idea, let's put her on a moving horse. She'll be sitting still and, and moving, so we'll know where she is all the time. Um, and pretty rapidly, I was about two years old, and I plopped off the side of that horse the first day. And it kept cantering. I actually had kicked it into a canter, and I just lay there in its path on the ground. 
and I turned over in the dirt, and there was a horse barreling down on me, everybody watching a gas. And the horse jumped over me. And that's the scene I begin the book with. I say, I don't remember the first time I was on a horse. I remember the first time I was off it. And rightly or wrongly, that moment in my little life imprinted the idea that horses would save me. And my adult life has proved that true. I was the victim of a knife attack. Actually, a robber climbed through my window in the West Village on Thanksgiving Day 2010 um, and stabbed me while I was in bed. And after that, Jeff, the city became incredibly loud to me. I had post-traumatic stress, a thing called hypervigilance. I heard everything because when you're a prey creature, when you're hunted, I heard every sound. And that's how horses operate in the world. They are prey creatures. We're predators. And they live that way, but they communicate with one another through silence. And those horses helped quiet down the city. They helped make my life whole again. And like that little girl in the dirt when I was two, they saved me as an adult. And, and you know, moving around as far as the order of questions I wanted to ask you, because in talking about horses, there are so many, uh, and that's what was so enjoyable about this too. So many things about horses and the way that you know, uh, you know that people might not realize. Um, not just how much manure the average horse produces each day, <laughs> which you go into, but you know some other things that you kind of teach us. But and it's not this is not you know an academic book. You know it you know it really is done in an enjoyable way. Can you just talk about some of the other things that you you want to show show with the reader about why horses act certain ways? Sure. Well, what I did is. Every element of my life, I, I pulled the thread. So I've always been around horses and seen how they converse with each other, but I decided to put it through my uh, investigative lens. And I wanted to understand the science behind it. We say, look a gift horse in the mouth. What does that mean? That's actually uh, from um, the uh, uh, from the Bible. That's how old that, uh, that sentence is, that phrase. And it's because... Horses wear their teeth down uh, at different rates throughout their life. And so like the rings on an oak tree, a horse's teeth and its dentition can tell you its age. Another thing is um, they communicate, like I said, in silence, but with a very definite delineated system of gestures. They actually have a sign language of ears. Their ears rotate different directions, and that tells their mood. When they're uh, tipped back, they're a little peeved. When they're flat back, they might... Follow that up with a bite in case you didn't get the message. Um, and pricked forward is their smile. And so I dug into the different stories uh, and really the meaning behind horses. I actually also, I have a Dutch warm blood. It's a type of horse. And I thought to myself, how the heck do I have a Dutch horse in New York? And turns out he was imported on a 747. He flew into JFK, just like many Dutchmen do. And so I went in the belly of a cargo plane uh, and imported nine Dutch Warmbloods myself for the book to see how horses fly. And so, like you said, it's not an academic book, but you will come away knowing far more than maybe you ever wanted to about horses. <laughs> And that was another moment that stood out for me as the uh, as the plane was landing and the horses or descending and the horses were kind of nestling against you uh, for, for comfort. It was such a profound moment. I, I describe when the landing gear comes out in the plane, you know, and the horse's equilibrium shifts. 
And that silence of their dialogue really becomes a problem because you can't say to them, oh, guys, guys, we're just going, you know, on a descent into JFK. You know, they, they don't get it. They just know, oh, my belly's fluttering. And so suddenly as one, I was in a shipping container with these uh, three horses because you don't actually stay seatbelted when you're a horsey flight attendant. <laughs> you, you hold them in their places. And suddenly these three horses pressed into my chest the way they would under the the hip of a of a mother mare and they sort of came to me for solace and as we descended through the air they leaned into me and and I became their herd and that's really the profound grace of horses and something we we take from them but don't ever really give back we delight in their life we partner with them and I often struggle with and I discuss in the book do we give back to them what they give us which is the feeling of being part of something much larger than ourselves so uh, our listeners might have, at one point in their life, if they were walking through Central Park, they might have encountered you on <laughs> patrol. Could you talk a little about your work in Central Park? Because I found that fascinating, too. Well, if they were listeners with their dogs off a leash, not only did they encounter me <laughs> astride a giant horse as New York City Parks Enforcement, they encountered my booklet of tickets. Because that was our job. I was a teenage mounted parks enforcement officer on these giant Belgian draft horses. Those are like the Budweiser horses, cousins to them. And we really cut a formidable figure marching through the park. Uh, the secret was, though, we had these batons on us, nightsticks. And I did this when I was a teenager as um, I went to a private school and you were allowed to have a job for a second semester senior instead of uh, coming to class. And so that was my job. But my job really as a mounted rider was to chase truants just like myself on my days off uh, through the park. But the secret was our horses were barely trained. They really only know how to go stop uh, and forward. And our nightsticks were glued to the saddle, so we could never use them. <laughs> so cut a formidable figure in the park and scare the daylights out of teenagers, for sure. Do anything other than that was beyond our capacity <laughs> and adjacent to the park up near where i used to live on the upper west side the museum of natural history you um you talk about uh what you discovered uh is housed at the museum of natural history can you explain that a bit for our listeners sure i wanted to understand where the horse came from and what's really fascinating about the horse in america is that ten thousand years ago they went extinct and they're actually a relatively recent import brought by Spanish conquistadors in the 1400s. And we think of them as so tied up with Americana and identity, but they're as foreign, uh, like to the British as tea is, right? Tea is from India, but we think of that as tied up with uh, British identity. And I always found that interesting and liberating, that uh, horses belong to who we say they belong to, and identity can be crafted. So I wanted to figure out where these horses came from. So on the fourth floor of the Natural History Museum, there are, believe it or not, 10,000 horse specimens. Because when those specimens were collected and, and specimens of the horses passed, uh, horses were the way you got around. They were the most important animal in the world back in the 1800s, 1900s when that collection was amassed. And there are cabinets and cabinets of 50 million year old equine antecedents. And I actually got to hold the tiny cat sized head of one in my palm to understand where these animals came from. I'll tell you a really fascinating tidbit. 
one of the reasons why that cat-sized creature uh, became the rideable giant is grass. So grass didn't exist when horses were first uh, born on this planet uh, or their horse ancestors. And so as blades of grass uh, came into existence, horses need to get bigger and bigger to process those tiny blades and get nutrition out of them. So we owe that massive size of these horses to tiny blades of grass. Wow. So, Sarah, I've got just about a minute left, and I want to close with a quote that you cite from a woman who owned a number of horses and who had gone through a divorce. She said, I have horses. How do you compete with horses? So I ask you, how do we compete with them? (laughs) Well, I would say nothing competes with horses, and I totally agree with her. Um, I think next up for me may be deeper and further explorations into the horse world. One of the things I talk about is how black people were removed from the equestrian story. One in four cowboys in the pioneer era were black, uh, but they've been totally erased from the narratives of the cowboydom. Uh, We just ran the Kentucky Derby. The first ever winner of the Kentucky Derby was a black man, and the trainer of that horse was a freed slave. And so the stories of people erased from the narrative, underrepresented in history, and the equestrian narrative, which is the American narrative in a way, are really a passion of mine, and I'm going to continue to tell those stories. And I'm so glad you said that, because as I thought about it, as I read the book, I felt like each chapter could be another book. (laughs) From your mouth to God's ears, Jeff, let's do it. Sarah Maslinier, where can people go to learn more about you and also to find out more about Horse Crazy? Well, you can always find me in the New York Times. I've been covering uh, the racial and civil unrest that we are all experiencing and uh, getting hit with pepper bullets while doing it. Um, But if you'd like to buy Horse Crazy, it's available at all retailers, but I highly suggest that you buy it at your local bookshop. And a great way to find that is through IndieBound, which locates your local bookshop nearest to you. Support local business. Sarah Maslinier, thanks for joining me this morning on WBAI. Terrific. Thanks for having me.